Hello and welcome to episode 26 of the Frame and Sequence podcast. In this episode, I sit down with photographer Norm Klassen. Norm's stunning iconic photography was some of my first impressions of the American West when I was young, as it was seen in just about every magazine published in the 1980s and billboards across the United States. The Marble Man campaign, conceived by Leo Burnett and photographed by Norm, is arguably the most iconic ad campaign ever photographed, and no, he never smoked. His incredible sense of story, combined with his acute eye for finding great light in even the harshest of conditions, is truly inspiring. Norm was kind enough to sit down with me to share his stories and techniques, and I hope you enjoy part one of our conversation. I guess I only recently knew who you were but I've been seeing your images since I was a kid (laughs) and you know always in like either the like full back page of a Nat Geo or something with the the Marvel campaigns. Uh, There's a funny story about that the the, where I live now they they've had they've put in two or three full-on polo fields oh wow they want to train their horses at high altitude so by the time they go back to Palm Beach they're just like kicking ass (laughs) totally so they put these in anyway the long and short is it some of these top polo players have come to play, and one of them found out one day, I, I really don't know how, found out one day that I had worked on the Marlboro campaign. So he looked me up and he said, he's from Argentina, and he said, I have to talk to you. I said, okay. He said, when we were kids, my brother and I used to tear all the ads out of the magazines and pin them all over our all over our walls. He said it was our, it was our porn. Yeah. <laughs> he said it was all over the walls. And he said, you know, could you ever show me a real slide from that? And of course I had him there at the house. And I showed it to him. He's just giddy. I mean, it, you just don't realize how impactful that campaign was internationally. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Everywhere you'd go in the world, you'd get off a train or a bus or a plane and there was a poster, you know, and yeah. you're just going, what? <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that must have been surreal for you as well. Well, it is. It's, it's kind of like you, you want to jump up and down and say, hey, that's my photo. That's a movie. And then you're going, keep your mouth shut. <laughs> <laughs> but no, Ed, they were, I mean, they really were everywhere. And it, yeah, I, I sort of, my grandparents grew up in rural Ohio. Uh-huh. So I was like always obsessed with like driving by horse farms right. and stuff like that. And I distinctly remember they had stacks of old Nat Geos there. And yeah, your work was all over them. So. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I think it it also like, you know, growing up in Ohio gave me this idea of what the West must be like, this grand place that like, you know, I didn't grow up around mountains and whatnot, so. Well, it was probably the greatest chronicle of of what was left of the West that's ever been done. Right. Uh, And the reason I say that is that, you know, none of it was, none of it was phony. And it was, we went to real ranches. Our cowboys, there were four of them that I had with over a 13 year period of time. And they were really good hands. You can't ask a guy to do some of the stuff they were doing and be some model out of, you know, East L.A. somewhere. It's not going to happen. Right. I mean, their body language and just everything about it. So everything was real and no artificial lights. It was just to try and make it real. Yeah. And uh, these guys pulled it off. And, you know, Marlboro was with the most distinctive page you would find in a magazine. Absolutely. Everyone wanted an 8 by 10 of some L'Oreal girl with her eyelashes perfect. Then you'd go to the next page and here's this grainy, rough looking, uh, you know, picture that was just timeless. Yeah. And that was their identity. Yeah. That was they really did a good job with it. 
Yeah. So well, anyway, start asking me some no, questions. No, yeah. I'll give you some answers. No, well, no, I really appreciate <laughs> you. You may not like them, but I'll give them to you. No, that's even better. <laughs> no, I really appreciate you sitting down with me. And um, yeah, I'd love to just dive in. So what, where did you grow up? You grew up in California, yeah? I was born and raised in California. Okay. Born in Queen of Angels Hospital. Uh, moved to Big Bear Lake when I was uh, 12 years old. And, uh, you know, fell in love with the mountains. Mm -hmm. And then I... I uh, had a skiing scholarship at the University of Colorado, so I fell in love with Colorado. So after after college, I came back here and I said, mm, "You got to make a choice between Colorado and California." I was off to Colorado. <laughs> what was the deciding factor for you? Oh, well, I think it's the skiing. Yeah. You know, I mean, I had a skiing scholarship at CU, so we got to ski in every every area in Colorado. Wow. And uh, it was just it was glorious. I mean, compared to Snow Summit and Big Bear Lake. Right. It was all, although I spent a lot of time in Mammoth Mountain, but no, I just decided Colorado's where I wanted to, wanted to be. And yeah. I, I think at that time I knew I really wanted a lifestyle more than I wanted to worry about what I was going to do the rest of my life. Right. <laughs> you just have to figure that out while you're there. Yeah, absolutely. And that must have been pretty raw back then. I can imagine oh, not yeah. as many. Well, it was a town of about a thousand people, um, and there wasn't a paved road in town. Yeah. You could lose a Volkswagen in some of the potholes in springtime there. <laughs> it was just, that's the way it was. It was yeah. just a little mining town kind of going, morphing from a, a, a mining town that kind of went dormant uh, for many years, maybe 30, 40 years. And then right after World War II, a lot of the 10th Mountain soldiers hmm. made a pact that if they survived that, they would come back to Colorado and they would start ski areas, one oh, wow. of which was in Aspen. And they were going to originally do it, oh, I don't know, 10 or 12 miles out of Aspen. And they finally decided, why, why do that? we got a town right here. So right. they put it there. And, and that was how the whole thing started. I mean, those guys came back from 10th Mountain. Incredible. And, the, the, you know, a lot of them didn't make it. Yeah. Those that did, they were dedicated to skiing. And they started Vail and they started Aspen. Wow. And uh, some of them spread over into Steamboat Springs. And that's how Colorado got its real fame, was through those guys. Wow, that's incredible. Amazing, I didn't know that. Yeah. Amazing men. Boy, what they went through. Gosh. Oof. I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, they were outnumbered 10 to 1, and they held, they held the, the ridge in Italy for three weeks, wow. which helped win the war. Up in the nasty mountains? No, yeah. no. 10th Mountain Division. Wow. Characters. Incredible. <laughs> they're all, unfortunately, they're all passing away now, and it's kind of sad to go one funeral after the other yeah. because, you know, the World War II vets are just, they're up there. Right. So, yeah, great guys. Huh? Wow, incredible. And then so, um, for work, you started a graphic design agency? Well, you know, when I first went there, I obviously went there to ski, and I was a ski instructor like everybody else in town, <laughs> <laughs> making my meager $7 a day or whatever it was. But um, after about, I think, I think it was about, the third year that I was there, I began realizing that you couldn't be a ski instructor forever. And I happened, my dad happened to be an illustrator for Post Magazine, which is probably something you're not familiar with. But oh, I know. Yeah. Oh, yeah. The old Post, yeah. And he, had a, he was a real strong graphic artist and a real strong artist. And I learned a lot from him. Never got his skills, but I learned a lot. So I decided in this little town of Aspen, they needed a little design studio. They needed a little something to design menus and yeah. logos and flyers and whatever. So... I opened the doors and started doing that, and uh, you know that that I just sort of drifted away from being a ski instructor and decided to do some, <laughs> something more realistic. 
And uh, that led eventually to um, a little ad, you know, we had a whole ad agency going for a while. It was wow, that's incredible. In a little town like Aspen. But all of our clients were ski clients. I had uh, pre-skis, Scott goggles, Smith goggles, Dimitri sweaters. I had uh, Lang boots. In fact, I did their whole campaign. Oh, wow. Um, we're all doing it out of this one little office in Aspen, but it was great because everyone came there to test their equipment, and I got, oh. and I, I, I wasn't able to get the photos that I wanted. So I picked up a camera and said, I can do this. Wow. And just started taking my own photos. And of course, I was miserable at it at the beginning, <laughs> but you know, you, you get it. Yeah. It, 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 it's, not a, it's not a science thing. It's something you can really feel. Right. Did it, and um, that was, I was able to provide all of these clients with, you know, really good photography and a place to work their equipment and test it. And yeah. It was, it was really, it lasted about, gosh, it must have lasted about eight years. And then all of a sudden, one day I got a call from, uh, from an agent in Chicago saying he needed somebody in the area to scout for him a location for Marlboro to come in and do a Christmas ad. Mm. So I knew the area really, and I said, sure, I'll do that for you. And I found them their location, and the photographer came in. His name was Larry Dale Gordon, and he came in and shot it. And about two months later, I get the same phone call from this guy this time. And he said, um, you know, while I was up there, I looked at some of your work. Are you at all interested in, in maybe doing a test shoot for Marlboro? And I'm sitting there now, what? <laughs> my right arm went up so fast I dislocated my shoulder and I just so I just said well of course and I thought to myself why why in there anyway long story short yeah he had gone to Leo Burnett in Chicago and told him that there was a photographer in Aspen that he thought would fit their bill wow and um I would talk about good luck. And, and, you know, <laughs> it's pretty and fortunate. So, so I did my first test shoot for them, and it was a total disaster. Uh, <laughs> it's just, I mean, I'm, I'm embarrassed to even think about it. Um, but they must have seen something that captured their attention. As I got a call another month later, said, I want you to do a test shoot this time with our real cowboys on a real location and see how you do. Amazing. And... Uh, talk about having butterflies but anyway I went out and did this it was such a success I think we sold out of a test shoot we sold like four ads or something out of out of the test shoot wow and that locked me in and I, I was there for over 13 years after that oh my gosh that's absolutely incredible <laughs> wow so talk about just out of nowhere yeah and um, did you have a crew then with you at that oh, point? Yeah. Or it but been? talk about a small crew one of the things that Marlboro insisted on was uh, anonymity. They, they didn't want people to know who was, like for, I'll just give an example. When you're growing up and looking at these ads and the Cowboys, you never saw one interviewed on television. You never saw one interviewed on the radio. You never saw a newspaper article about them. Right. They were mysterious people that lived in the West. Yeah. And uh, even there was more than one Cowboy because you can't ask the same guy to do it over and over and over and over. Um, what, what was actually happening was that they were building this mystery, Marlboro, where you didn't know who they were, you didn't know where they lived, you just know that they were this free-spirited American male roaming around out in this great Western, you know, scene. Yeah. And the interesting thing was that Marlboro used to be a woman's cigarette. It was originally marketed as a woman's cigarette. No kidding, wow. Yeah. And they decided they needed to expand into uh, the male market 
and uh, Philip Morris, who had the, you know, kind of the foresight about this thing, hired Lear Burnett to come up with a theme. They tried everything. They tried a lumberjack. They tried a guy with a, you know, <laughs> they tried a cat driver, you know, on a bulldozer. They tried to get this masculine image uh, that they were going to promote. And all of a sudden there was a, a, a cover on Life magazine. And the cover was a guy, it was a cowboy. Wow. And the story was about Texas. And someone at Leo Burnett said, cowboy, let's try a cowboy. So they decided to go see what, how that would work with the male audience, you know. And you got to think, let's not think of the West like you and I, the way we're dressed, but think of some guy in the East with a three-piece suit and just tie up the hair yeah. and just going to work on a, on, on a subway and going, all I want to do is be a cowboy out in the West, you know. Yep. Get me out of this suit. So it really appealed to men. Found out it appealed equally as well to women, if not more so. So fascinating, isn't it? It's really fascinating. <laughs> so I, one day I finally had to ask, I said, you know, what was the logic behind that? And they said, well, interestingly enough, women fell in love with this mysterious cowboy because secretly women all had sort of a secret desire to have some, of, some sort of a romance with a cowboy who always rode off in the sunset. Right. So there was no obligation. <laughs> and I said, come on, it can't be that simple. They said it was that simple. <laughs> you know, it was just, and it, was, it had a sexual appeal to women and had a very masculine appeal to men. And they just stumbled onto this by almost pure accident. And it ran for 50 some years with the same theme. You know, basically the theme was this, again, this mysterious cowboy or cowboys mm -hmm. that are out in the West doing this thing. And before long, it started to chronicle the West and, and, and tell stories about the West. And so it was, the, it was the one campaign that I'm aware of that was more an art piece than a campaign. Yeah. Can you think of, for example, can you think of any other campaign that you can remember where the images changed as much as they did? Because they were changing like every month. They'd bring out six, seven, eight new images. Right. And had this, had this theme going where you were telling stories every time. That was the whole idea. Of, when you looked at the picture, it wasn't so much, it's funny because it wasn't so much about saying, smoke this right. at Samarborough. It was like, identify with this lifestyle. Right. Identify with this campaign, and it'll take care of itself. The name Marlboro would just keep coming up. So we were never instructed to go out and, you know, try and direct a market toward any one group. It was just telling stories morning stories, afternoon stories, shoot in the midday because cowboys work in the middle yeah. of the day. So a lot of the shots that you saw were taken at 11 o'clock or 1 o'clock in the afternoon and they were without question the hardest light you'd ever oh, yeah. want to shoot in. But <laughs> it, it was hard. It, it, was, it was designed to be that way. We would take ectochrome film and we would actually push it a stop just to give it that grainy. It took me a year to figure out how to wow. do that grainy sort of a rugged look. And Ectochrome was the film for it. Kodachrome was far too far too clean and, and mm. you know, just Kodachrome was designed to be a very clean yeah. film. Ectochrome was designed to have a little bit of grain, a little bit of grit. So that's where you started working with that. Oh wow. But the ads took that flavor on and it just lasted forever. It was just a great campaign. Most iconic I think the most iconic campaign maybe in advertising history. Yeah. I, I really believe that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it, it totally defined like the American yeah. 
vision it's of, in a class of the West. It's in a class all by itself. Yeah, absolutely. Was there a lot of uh, creative direction at the beginning, or were they collaborative with you? Well, the agency, Leo Burnett, um, out of Chicago, was assigned to this account, and there was a team of about, well, I was working with a team of about five art directors that were there, and their job when they weren't out shooting was to create sketches and to create, uh, add ideas and stories. Half of them had no clue about the West, but they were doing it anyway. They got paid good money to do it. <laughs> Some of them were brilliant, but they would actually bring those. I would fly to Chicago before a shoot and find out what it was that they needed. A lot of horizontal pictures or a lot of vertical pictures, or do we need uh, a lot of horses in this or individual? It was just laid out. You know, go get that information, then it was up to you to go find the location to make that work. Oh wow! And those locations included everything from Texas, all Arizona, Nevada, Utah, Montana, Wyoming, all the way up the West Coast. Yeah. If you once you found those, you try and identify the locations to the sketches, and that got to be tricky because you would actually have to knock on some rancher's <laughs> door, at right. usually five thirty in the morning, and say, I'm, "I'm who I am, and I'm here, and I want to do a Marlboro shoot." Some of them would kick you off the property because they were just against smoking. Yeah. Others, they wanted to be part of it. They, you know, they loved it. So um, that part would take, oh, usually a week or so mm -hmm. while you're scouting. You know that. Yeah. You do it all the time. You scout those locations. Then you come back home, put your team together. You asked me how, how big a team it was. There were four cowboys, one really older cowboy that we, we knew we wouldn't shoot much anymore, but probably the best rider we had. Mm -hmm. A young cowboy from Salida, Colorado, who um, had a very sort of a dark hair and sort of an Italian look. It was mm. sort of, it was an international type look. He yeah. had a hell of a cowboy. Then we had another guy by the name of Darrell Winfield that was uh, has just since passed away. God, what a man he was. He was the guy with that beautiful mustache and oh, that yeah. square jaw and those piercing blue eyes. Uh, they found him working on a ranch in Pinedale, Wyoming. <laughs> and, uh, he funny. became he became the most photographed male face in the world. Wow! And then nobody knew his name. Nobody knew where he came from. Right. Yeah, he lived in a little town called Riverton, Wyoming. Had a little ten acre little chickens, ducks, pigs, yeah. horses. You know, a little piece of heaven. And uh, he was. And then, and then there was a young cowboy that that I actually helped find, um, who sort of picked up as we were as, as these guys were aging. He kind of sort of slid into the program. Mm. But they used to tell him, just go home and take your hat off and get some wrinkles. <laughs> <laughs> but um, those were the four cowboys I had, and I had to decide which cowboy fit which sketch and how you're going to do it. And um, so my team, back to that, was myself, and my first assistant was a guy by the name of Fred Mullane, mm -hmm. who was a, a sports photographer. The two of us had worked Wimbledon a number of times together. I was doing some photography for Adidas, and I was doing it for um, Wilson, and then I did a, a, I did one year for Head, and so while we were back there, uh, we became good friends, and so 
when I had this opportunity, I knew I had to have an assistant. So he was one I really knew was a good shooter. Mm -hmm. We were all analog, and you know, it was, it's all hand-focused, 300, 400 millimeter stuff. I was going to ask you about the lens. And not every, not everybody was good at hand-holding those bigger. You know, you don't, you can't, you can't use a monopod or a tripod out there. I mean, things are just they're moving all over the horse. You don't know where the damn horses are going to go. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you have it all planned out. They're supposed to come here, but then you know they go. I just I don't want to go that way. So. You, you you had to be trained with your hand and eye, and tennis is a great thing for that because a right. tennis player does the same thing, forward, back, sideways, up, you know. So I had him come along, and then I had a, a producer who was a girl that used to model for me, actually, and a really bright girl by the name of uh, Cynthia Fox, and she... Um, didn't know a thing about production when we started, but by the time she ended, well, they didn't even want a woman on the set. Mm. They, Marlboro didn't even want a woman wow. on the set. And I'm not sure exactly why, but she proved them all wrong. Amazing. Um, and she actually did production for some of the other photographers that were working on it, too. She's that good. Oh, wow. Uh, and then the fourth person in my team was a, a guy from uh, London uh, by the name of Michael Cole, and someone asked, why don't you have Michael come all the way over from England every time he did a shoot? And I said, this guy could read light. But it, it, yeah. That's all you had. The light meter. You had, what, you had what you knew from experience, and you had a light meter. And somehow or another, when you're, you know, 100 yards away from the action, you better figure out what the light is over there. Right, absolutely. Because you don't have a second chance. Yeah. You can't look in the back of your digital camera and see what the light is. <laughs> right, exactly. You know, that's it. Yeah. And, you know, as you remember, in analog days, you had about three quarters of a, of a stop to play with, and that was it. Yeah. Wow. So, uh, and most Marlboro stuff was shot about a half a stop um, underexposed just because they wanted that richness. They didn't want that light look. Yeah. Unless you were doing menthol lights, right. then you had to switch things around. <laughs> oh, that's funny. But, um, so that was my crew of four. There were four cowboys and, and the four of us. Incredible. And um, everyone kept saying to me, it must be a huge crew out there. Uh, no. <laughs> you, can't, you couldn't work with a huge crew. Right. You just couldn't do it. Just, if you're out there and all of a sudden you see something over here and the light is just right over there and you, you need to move everything, you know, three, four hundred yards in a quick mo without dilly-dallying around, you can't do it with a big crew. Right. So the cowboys would mount up, take the horses over. Uh, they'd have a couple of Wranglers with them to help them. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we'd all pile in my truck and get over there and then you'd get the shot done. So you couldn't do it with a big crew. Yeah. Wow. That's absolutely <laughs> Everyone kept thinking this was this big production. Yeah. It really wasn't. I guess it's super run and gun. My self-assistant, guy that read light, and my producer. Wow. That's absolutely incredible. Yeah. Did uh, Were most of the images shot with longer lenses? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I, you know, to be honest, I'd say probably the, about the shortest lens that I can remember using out there was the old 180, yeah. the Nikon 180 series. Um, and you asked the reason why is because you really wanted to shoot at f2.8 and 4 whenever you could. You wanted that background to go soft. Yeah. You wanted that cowboy to, and the, whatever you were focused on, you wanted them forefront and everything else to go out. As soon as you started shooting at 6.3 and 8, it just didn't have the same look. Yeah. That's one of the other questions I wanted to ask you is that it, it's, it also felt like a campaign that suddenly had a very cinema look yeah, as yeah. opposed to a very studio bright forward yeah. lit, you know, yeah. like a lot of them are atmospheric and yeah. backlit and like, was that a conscious choice to do that? I think each, I think each art director had a, 
had sort of a different feeling when they went out about what they wanted. But ultimately, after about two years, you know, they just left it up to me. Yeah. I mean, they're like, it's working. <laughs> they, they got a chance to go on a vacation to Wyoming or Montana or whatever. <laughs> and I, I don't want to say they, they were silent. I mean, they, they tried to earn their, their keep. But basically, between the Cowboys and myself and my crew, and occasionally some consultings uh, with the art directors. We knew what we wanted to get. Yeah. We knew how to get it. And one of the things that we were trained to do, as I said, was to train to work in that hard light. There's a thing called the famous Marlboro shadow. And if you look back on some of the ads, you'll see it. They, they wear Stetson hat. There were three things that, the, that, that were in every photograph. A yellow slicker tied on the back of the saddle. Mm. Okay, that was number one. Uh, number two was the... The, the hat, mm -hmm. okay, that you saw all the time. And number number three was the fact that the cowboy always had a certain shirt on. A blue shirt, a red shirt, a wine shirt, or a tan shirt, or a white shirt. Nothing else. No plaids, no yeah. denim, you know. These were, these were symbols that Leo Burnett gave to the photographer and said, these are what you have to work with every time. And um, so as you go through the ads, you'll, you'll never see anything change from that. And then they had this famous cowboy shadow, which happened from the, the Stetson, where in the midday light, that shadow would creep across your face. Mm. So unless you were doing a, a sort of a portrait type of shot, a lot of times what you'd see was this cowboy riding out there with the shadow across his face, which made him even more mysterious. Absolutely. <laughs> right? So yeah. you didn't identify with the... You, you could identify in some of the portrait shots, but when you're out there, you couldn't identify with that particular cowboy. Wow. He was just, this, again, part of this mysterious thing that floated around in the West. Yeah. Which is just a brilliant concept. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely brilliant. Amazing. Did you have a, a specific favorite location um, in terms of state? or? Yeah, yeah. I did, actually. Um, we had a location in Montana, uh, very near Polson, mm. which is at the bottom of Flathead Lake, which drains out of the glacier. Glacier National Park, oh, wow. and um, the, uh, not too far from there, you had to go over a ridge and into a big valley. It was a place called Ronan, and uh, there was a rancher out there that we met who had, um, God, he had at least a couple thousand acres out there. Not a telephone line, not a, I mean, just, <laughs> I mean, just. <laughs> Well, what everybody expected the West to look like yeah. and be like. Because we didn't have the opportunity to just go spot out telephone lines and telephone towers. Right. They could do some airbrushing if they did dye transfers first, but not a lot of it. It had to be real. Yeah. So this was perfect location. He happened to have about 70 head of horses. That He was one of these guys that just kept breeding horses and breeding horses but never selling them. <laughs> <laughs> and he wound up with this beautiful herd of horses that had never been, never been um, you know, schooled, never been halter broke, never been just wild horses. Wow. But he had them on his property and I could use them. He wasn't the least bit afraid of running them or doing things on them because they were so tough. Yeah. Not a one of them had shoes on them because they were just tough horses. Wow. And he gave me the ability to put large packs of horses together and do some pretty spectacular shots, vista shots as well as close up with horses. So that was my favorite location. And wow. this guy's name was Carl Moss. And um, he just passed away recently, and he was uh, one heck of a cowboy and one heck of a good guy. Wow. And uh, he's a Mormon guy, and I would have thought for sure that uh, uh, he didn't want us on his property, but uh -huh. he welcomed us every time we were there and oh, helped that's amazing. us. And, yeah. 
Are those some of the super iconic shots of like the horses running downhill and whatnot? Yeah. Yeah, those are gorgeous. Yeah. I mean, you can't do that with just anybody's horses. Right. I mean, you know, they're all worried about their horses are worth a lot of money. Yeah. And this guy had beautiful horses, but he didn't know what to do with them. So uh, it was perfect for us to come and pay him to use his horses. Absolutely. He thought that was heaven. Yeah. <laughs> and so he got all kinds of prints for his wall. <laughs> oh, amazing. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I mean, one of the other things I love about the campaign, just I was scrolling through them again, is just uh, they're all seasonal, too. Like there's some yeah. wintry ones where just the guy, the cowboys are on horseback on like winter and you can see the yep. steam rising off of like a spring yep. in the distance. They're just absolutely No, no, no. That, we shot in every season, you know, we did a lot of fall shoots. Um, I mean, they didn't, you didn't want them to get too pretty or cute. It wasn't yeah. like going back to New England with the orange trees. But, you know, you're, you're, you get that, they'll pick a time of year when the leaves have already started to fall. Mm -hmm. Some of the trees are yellow, but some of them are bare now, and there's leaves on the ground, and, you know, that look, as opposed to being too sweet. Right. And um, we'd shoot in the fall, and, of course, you've got, boy, out here in the West, you've got all kinds of places. Yeah. Wyoming, Montana, Utah, Colorado, I mean, it's just... Yeah. Incredible places to shoot. Um, in the winter time, the winter shoots were, um, well, they were tricky. They, they weren't quite as long. Mm -hmm. I think a summer shoot would last five, six days, um, intense days. I mean, every day just pounding at it, getting up at two in the morning and getting the livestock ready. So, wow. you know, you could only do about six of those and then everybody started getting a little testy, yeah. <laughs> the horses as well. Yeah. So, but the winter shoots were usually four days. Wow. And um, uh, you knew exactly where you wanted to be and the snow couldn't be too deep and it couldn't be too little. It had to just sort of be right. A couple of times we had to cancel, get everything together and then just the warm spell would come through and wipe it out. Oh, wipe it out, yeah. And just had to, had to cancel. But I actually did a lot of the winter shoots for them and, and um, outside of being a little on the cold side, they were fun. Oh, I bet, yeah. They were really fun. Uh, the horses are frisky and, and uh, the cowboys, you know, they, they like to get it done and get, <laughs> get back inside <laughs> right. and have a cup of soup. Exactly. So we didn't linger around the short days, but it was, uh, we, did some, we created some really interesting ads in the snow. Yeah, no, there's some really gorgeous stuff. Yeah. And so through all the campaign and meta season, you guys would shoot Ectochrome as the stock? Or? Yeah. Wow. You know what happened to really, Paul, was in the very early stages of it, particularly when I was first trying out, I don't know what I was thinking about. <laughs> but I loaded, I, I must have had three bricks of Kodachrome, you know, so I had like 60, 70, 80 rolls of Kodachrome. First of all, that wasn't enough Kodachrome, but secondly, <laughs> we'd have to go buy it from a local store. But the interesting thing is I turned it all in and all of a sudden I get this phone call and my senior art director is just ripping me. And I'm going, what did I do wrong? What did I, I thought those were great shots. He said, these shots look you know, these shooks, it's a perfume ad. What are you doing? They're just too sharp. They're clean. We, we're having to take all these and dupe them onto ectochrome. And then <laughs> I'm going, really? He said, yeah. He said, now, that doesn't mean the shots were bad. It just means don't use that Kodachrome stuff. Right. <laughs> he That's said, so take ectochrome and push it. I had never really been a, a fan of ectochrome. And I'd never been a fan of pushing film. Yeah. And... So I had to go out and do some test shoots and figure out what the, what the hell this was all about. And from then on, that's all, almost all we ever used. Wow, that, and always pushed? Always. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, you know, once I got that's off a of beautiful look. doing the Marlboro campaign, I went back to <laughs> a sharper film, which is Kodachrome. But, yeah, for sure. Uh, you know, and then as time marched on, um, you know, 
the whole digital image came in and um, they actually kind of quit advertising in the States when the digital image whole thing came in. Mm -hmm. I think one shot, one shot I saw that we did on digital and after that they just kind of, it, 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 they just couldn't get the same look. You know, yeah. digital photography is just sharp, crisp, it's a frozen moment in time. We're always trying to shoot somewhere in the range, depending on the lens, somewhere in the, sh in the range of being just less than perfectly sharp, perfectly yeah. stopping action. You wanted to have a little bit, you, you wanted to see that horse and cowboy look like they're actually moving. Yeah. And that was a, that was a key part of the, the trick of, of, of shooting it, was to just know your exposures and your speed so that you didn't just freeze it. Right. If, if you froze it and if you're shooting at F8, they'd throw it up. They'd just be gone in the trash can. So fascinating. Yeah, that's interesting because now everyone just wants the yeah. megapixels and the, is this sharp? Can we no. sharpen it more? It's like, yeah, I know. <laughs> you're trying to kill the life out of it all the way. I, you know, it's funny because to this day, I still try and, I still try and replicate that. And I think I'm going to have to go back to film. <laughs> I was going to ask you, so when did you make the switch to digital? Well, I actually made the switch early on. Uh, well, let, let me put it another way. I went to a seminar in Denver. Mm. And it was, it was put on by, um, I think it was put on by Adobe. And they were trying to convince people to switch everything over. So I, <laughs> I went down to this and I'm in an auditorium room with hundreds of people and this guy, this young guy, young guy, I was guessing in his mid-twenties, had all the technique, you know, walking back and forth across the stage and then suddenly turning to the audience, you know, all the stuff you're taught to do. Right. And he walked back and forth a couple of times and said, how many out there are shooting analog? And I kind of raised my hand and I noticed a lot of people <laughs> raised their hand too. He said, listen, you're standing on the platform. The train is coming. Either get on or get off. And I went, oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> really? <laughs> and, you know, but I took his, I took his word for it, you know, and, and then he said, well, now that's the good news if you decided to do that. The bad news is you're going to have to invest another $15,000 right. to get started. <laughs> new cameras, new lenses, new computers, new hard drives. Yep. But he was right. Yep. And, you know, um, the good news is, I think, if, if Marlboro had kept advertising, uh, by law, they, they couldn't anymore. Yeah. Uh, but if they had kept doing it, I'd just stayed with film. Yeah. Which, uh, just out of curiosity, and you don't have to answer, which digital system do you prefer? Say that again? Which digital system do you prefer? Well, I was an icon shooter from the very beginning. Oh, okay. So I just stuck with it. But, yeah, no, no there's no question. Um, you know, I had all the... Li we had more than enough lenses because of the... Because of the um, complications that kind of rise on location and the dust and all the things that you go in snow and all that crap. Basically what I had was always a backup of everything. So if I had two cameras, if I brought two cameras with me, I had four. four. Yeah. And if I had two, you know, 400 3.8s, I had three. Right. Because, you know, one can just be shattered in a moment with horses around. I mean, totally. first of all, they can, they can try to run you over and you drop your camera and step on it. Another thing is dust. Yep. I mean, after every shoot, we, almost every piece of equipment had to go back to back to be cleaned. Oh wow, I'm sure. So we had, so I had, you know, tons of equipment. So to stay digital, uh, to stay, excuse me, analog would have been no problem. To go digital would have been a whole new experience for that. Yeah. So yeah. fortunately, the way things timed out, 
they quit advertising and you know yeah. they sort of shut that down. Do you still have all your Nikon lenses? You know I do. Oh, amazing! <laughs> I do. I, in fact, I've got a photograph. Uh, Jennifer took one day. It's a table like this, and it's absolutely full, chock full, and and that's after some stuff that I just gave away. There must have been forty pieces of equipment in there. Oh, I'd love to. And see we that. used it. We used it to. Um, because I, tried, I applied to Nikon Pro Service, which I hadn't been in for years and years. They turned me down. <laughs> like we're not doing it. They turned me down because I, had, I didn't have any current. It was, it was after I'd retired, and I didn't have any current work. And they said, no, you can't be in Nikon Pro Service. So we sent them this photograph. Oh, that's hilarious. I got my card a week later. Amazing. That's so funny. My, uh, just a side note, my last... Uh, photo project in Kenya, I just took, I just shot all film, Nikon F100s. Did you? Yeah. And just black and white Tri-X and cool. love it. Got in that great. <laughs> yeah. You get the contacts. You oh, I had contacts. I missed that. Yeah. It's so, I really missed that. It just, to your point, it has a life to it that I felt like is missing. From no, it has a reality to it. Yeah. Don't you feel that? Oh, 100%. I mean, when you, when you shoot black and white and you shoot Tri-X and you see a little that grain come out, and you, you, you can just you can just put yourself in that photograph. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I look at a color photograph today, and I just I can't put myself in there. It's it's not where I want to be. Right. I don't have that that feeling like I want to just explore yeah. in that photo. It's there, and you see it, and it's done. Right. Black and white sometimes says, "Come on in. Yeah. Take a look around." Absolutely. I love that. Me too. The grainier, the nastier, yeah. the negative, the better. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Definitely a little world. I mean, where did you get your sense of storytelling? I mean, all those shots have such a story behind them. Just fortunately, growing up, particularly when I moved to Big Bear Lake, um, I rode fence for the local ranch wow. that bordered where I lived in Big Bear City. And I did that for three years. And so I had my own horse for uh, from the time I was 11 on. Oh, amazing. And, have never had a time when I haven't had my horses with me except here in college. So I had a cowboy, that's the wrong word. I had a, a real knowledge of ranchers and what things happen on a ranch, what things you do on a ranch. Uh, and I really knew that if given the flexibility, I could tell stories forever mm -hmm. by just changing the scenario, changing the light, changing the horses, changing the scene. I, I mean, the truth of the matter is, poor old cowboy doesn't do all that much. Right. <laughs> Gets up early in the morning, has breakfast, loads his horse in a trailer, goes out, fixes fence, chases down some cows, you know, comes home, has lunch, goes back out, does the same thing. Right. And, uh, you know, occasionally they, they move their cattle and they occasionally, you know, that becomes kind of fun for them, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, so, by and large, a cowboy's life is not as glamorous as we make it. But it is mysterious, and it is something people long for, that last bastion of the free-spirited American male. Yeah. And I knew I could tell those stories. And I think, to be honest with you, I think that's the reason that I was able to get the account in the first place and stay with it, yeah. is because I really could relate to, to the, that way of life and to the cowboys. And I made a, I made a pact with my cowboys in the first, second shoot, on my second shoot, because they're always looking at a new new face coming along, and they're kind of, <laughs> who is this skinny kid? You know, what, what's he got to contribute? And uh, I told, I gathered them all up one day before we started, and had my crew there. And I said, I don't know why I said this. Probably the dumbest thing I ever said. I said, I'll make you a deal. There's not one thing I'll ask you to do that I won't do myself. Hmm. 
And they all kind of perked their head up, and they said, really? And I said, really? And they said, see that horse over there? I said, yeah. I said, get on him. Well, I'd been riding all. I'd been riding since I was. I was going to ask you if you were. Yeah. I jumped on the horse. <laughs> still have my. I think I still have my walkie-talkie still on. And he said, uh, "Get on that horse and grab that lariat and go see if you can rope that post over there." <laughs> well, I had been. I had been roping since again since just because it's fun. Yeah. It's a fun thing to learn. So I just went over and roped the post, post and dallied it around my horn and. They started laughing and giggling. We became friends, and we were friends ever since. So the beauty of that was they worked with me to set some of these up. Yeah. Instead of keeping their mouths shut, you know, they said, well, Norm, let's try this, because they, they knew that I would do it. Right. I said I would, and, I, and they tested me a couple of times. <laughs> they put me on a bronchi horse one day, <laughs> which is the biggest test I ever had. <laughs> Luckily, I stayed on that horse. But, uh, and that was just for fun and games. Yeah. <laughs> they just yeah. wanted to see me get tossed. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I think that was the trust. And I think the, the storytelling and the, uh, the ability to put together some of these shoots was primarily because you not only had my team, but we had them too. Yeah. And then the art director. Right. I mean, how did he lose on that deal? Yeah. That's so, incredible. Yeah. Yeah, I think obviously, yeah, having that knowledge must have really helped. Oh yeah. yeah, no, just yeah, having having familiarity with, with the Western way of life and being able to ride, and not having any fear whatsoever of horses or, I mean, everyone kept saying, why do you stand out in the middle of a herd of horses? Don't they trample you? And the answer is no. If you don't move, they won't trample you. Right. If you don't move, <laughs> if you do move, you're going to get run over. <laughs> but just stand there, put your arms up, and they'll go around. They don't want to run over you. Right. That's that, that's not there. Modus operandi. <laughs> so you know you can't tell that to many people because they they kind of think you're joshing, but that's the truth. Yeah, that's true. Okay. My assistant and I would stand there, you know, he'd be on the camera maybe twenty thirty yards away, and I'd be here just to get two angles, and they, you know, they'd drive these horses toward us, and sure, it's your job to sort of find the cowboy in that and stay on that, but. Once, once a 400, once you start seeing eyeballs, it's time to, it's time to drop the camera, <laughs> yep. wave your hands, and, you know, and they would go right around you. Wow. I never had anybody hurt in all those years. Um, not once. And I can't remember once when we, we've had a horse get cut, mm. but never had a horse hurt. Amazing. And all because you know what they're capable of doing and, and, and what you're, as a photographer, capable of asking these guys to do yeah you can't ask them to do things that are i know some of the photographers had these dreams of photographs of, and the cowboys are saying no way bud no way yeah <laughs> so, <laughs> and, they, and, and that would turn them off and then they you know they, they won't work as hard for you yeah it's that, true that makes sense i'm sure they appreciate somebody who's had yeah. boots on the ground knows how to ride the whole thing they just they want to work with somebody that understands what they're doing and won't push them beyond their limits yeah and you still make great photographs that must have been so much fun. And having horses just running around, you must have been a powerful I love horses. experience. I mean, I can't think of anything that I could have ever done that was more enjoyable and that suited me better than that. You know, I had to give up the agency to do this, which was kind of a tough decision, but I'm glad I did it. Mm -hmm. And uh, I look back on it as being just the greatest time of my life, that's for sure. I mean, it's yeah. great. So that was Marlboro in those yeah. days. No, that, uh, 
must have been absolutely incredible. It was like the heyday <laughs> of advertising when yeah, they still had big budgets and I, I, creative I, things. I truly believe that. I, it was the heyday of advertising. Yeah. I mean, you know, once again, it was, it was film, and you didn't get a chance to make many mistakes, you know, and there was a lot of wonderful, wonderful images that went into the trash can because somebody's eyes were closed or the horse's ears were back instead mm -hmm. of forward or they were in the wrong stride. You know, yeah. horses have a perfect stride when they're reaching forward. Mm -hmm. They have a dumb looking stride when their legs right. are back. So a lot of those went in the trash can. They could have fixed them in Photoshop, but they didn't have it. Right. Yeah, you don't have it. You can't <laughs> replicate that motion. Yeah. Um, how many rolls of film do you feel like you shot a day? Was there an average that you... Yeah, there was actually. I'd say we shot somewhere around 50 rolls a day. Wow. Pretty good. <laughs> you know, you'd, you, you, you'd, when you think about it, when you set this whole thing up and um, you go to all the time to get all the things right for a shot, you don't want to lose that. Yeah. So if I have an assistant and, and on a given setup, we blow five rolls of film each, that's 10. And if you do five setups a day, that's 50, yeah. 50 rolls. So it seems like a lot, but in reality, yeah, yeah. knowing all the things that can happen, uh, while you're out shooting 36 frames. Right. Um, Especially because I'm sure a moment comes along and you might do a burst or, right. you know. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, yeah, I'd say 40 to 50 rolls wow. a day. That's mm -hmm. very cool. <laughs> Kodak loved me. Yeah, I was going to say. <laughs> they still make an exochrome today. So. Um, did you use a lab out of New York or Chicago? Oh, oh, no, I had a local lab. Oh, you did? Wow. I actually had a local lab in Aspen that did my film, and um, the only requirement was that he had to have fresh chemical in it every time I brought in yeah. film. I don't want to be the last one on the chemical. Right. <laughs> and uh, never had a real, I mean, we had a couple of water spots, but never had a real issue. Very cool. No, if you got it back in one day or two days, you could then just call up and say, you know, we got it back and we got it, you know. Or, yeah, I was going to ask you, like, <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> it's, it's nice out. to say we got it. It's kind of bad to say we blew it, but right. that happens. <laughs> But at least you're on location still yeah. most of the time. Yeah. You can do a rush sure. or something. Though. I mean, everyone thinks it was just, I don't know, they have this vision of how, particularly people like you that have been in the, in the business for a long time, and they have this vision of, of what it was all like and what it took to do it. And when I think back about it, how simple it was yeah. with just a small team of people. Um, I, know, I know a lot of guys will just look, or, or girls will look at you and say, no, that's just not true. <laughs> you know? No, it was true. Yeah. Now, we didn't have Wranglers. You have to have Wranglers. Yeah. And if you, if you take 50, 60, 70 head of horses out, you got to have someone that, when you run them past something, they got to go get them again, collect them and bring them back. Right. Particularly if you're going to do another, another take. And you only got sometimes one or two takes with these horses because they, they sour. They get fussy, yeah. They just get frustrated. Yeah. You know, they, they run, they're free, the, everything's happening just right. Then you go round them up and bring them back and do it again. They're kind of, why? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. It's not a horse's nature. Right. You know, so it wasn't like take four. Yeah. Yeah, so. Ah, uh, must have been an incredible time period. It was, it, was, it was a rush. Yeah, I bet. And just being, traveling that much and being out in the wilderness. All, yeah. You know, so and, fun. Uh, we traveled with the Cowboys, uh, almost never flew anywhere. Mm. If we packed, the, we packed all of our cameras in the back of my truck and away we went. And we met them with the horses wherever. They, they bring sometimes their own riding horses because wow. you don't want to just jump on some guy's horse that you don't know. Yeah. 
And uh, so they'd bring their riding horses, which they could rotate, because I, I was always asking them to make sure in their string they had a Palomino horse, and they had a white horse, and they had bay horses, sorrel horses, no paints, mm. no paint horses or Appaloosas that, according to the art directors, that looked like Indians. Oh, interesting, yeah. And they said, you know, don't want that. Away. Yeah. So uh, I never had those, but uh, yeah, they brought their own, and that's sensible. Yeah. That's really sensible. Very much so, yeah. They know and, them. And, and you know, if what, what was funny was if we had to, uh, uh, in, particularly in the winter shoots, if we had to stop and put chains on, it was the cowboys out there lying down, jacking up the trucks and putting on chains. <laughs> there was nobody else. I mean, they did everything. Wow, well, yeah. They did everything. These were real men. These were really the, the kind of guy that, I don't know you well, but the kind of guy you would admire. Yeah, you know, sure. No, no model. Yeah. <laughs> That ends part one of our conversation, and I hope you tune in for part two. To see some of Norm's incredible photography, please check out some of the links in the show notes, and we will see you in the next one.